So please stand. It is Acts chapter 17, 16 through 34. This is while Paul was in Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapacus, saying, May we know that this new teaching is that May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropicus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Dionysus the Apocalypse, Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. This is God's word. So we're delighted this morning to have uh, Brad Gill uh, with us to uh, deliver God's word to us. 
Brad and Beth have been Westgate missionaries for about 30 years now. Uh, Brad attended Gordon College uh, and majored in biblical studies. And then in his first year at Gordon-Conwell, he began to explore ministry to Muslims and ventured to the Summer Institute of Linguistics uh, in 1975, where he met Beth, who is pursuing an interest in Muslim ministry. Brad and Beth were married in 1976 and spent five years working with um, uh, Beth's dad, Dr. Ralph Winter, uh, starting the U.S. Center for World Mission. In 1983, they went overseas to North Africa to do church planting among Muslim peoples. Uh, Brad is presently the editor of the International Journal of Frontier Missiology, a periodical dedicated to advancing the understanding of ministry among unreached peoples of the world. Brad, welcome. We're going to start with a video, I hope. What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group, but to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations or people groups within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb people, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to ta ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. We must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that.
team can facilitate me on this. Um, wonderful to uh, thanks a lot, buddy. Great. Okay. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks to the tech team. I've asked them to do something today they're not used to, so I really appreciate it. Um, great to be back with you. Um, folks, I've had 40 years of, of working around under each people groups. It's a long time. And uh, as I was preparing for this time, I was singing a hymn just a week or so ago at our church. And uh, it came to the third verse. I think it was the third verse. And you know how the Spirit of God will enunciate something to you? You know, you're kind of bobbing along, churchy, kind of bobbing along. Then, boom, he catches you. Come on, shake You see, it happens, right? Well, it just came out. There it was. Gil, ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Ponder anew what the Almighty, you know the hymn. We're going to sing it at the end. Came right out, boom, right there, neon, right in front of me. And uh, I, I just took it from the Lord. I need to look again, not at unreached people groups per se, but what the Almighty can do. See what I've done. You know. So it's been a precious time for me to look at this chapter or this portion of the book of Acts 17. Did my exegesis paper at Gordon Conwell with this thing. Uh, it's always kind of chased me. Oh, the lessons that come from this weird, weird sermon. You check all the sermons of the book of Acts. This one really stands out. It's bizarre what Paul's doing here. And we don't have a time tonight or to, today to go into all the specificity of that. But I just, there's a, I'm going to just mention some things to ponder from it. You notice in the, the beginning it talked about Paul walking into this town and being provoked. Being provoked by the, the idols, the idolatry. Uh, made his way quickly to the synagogue. But he was provoked deeply. And um, it says here in the uh, 18th verse, these Epicureans, Stoic philosophers, find him down in the marketplace and they say to him, what would this idle babbler wish to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, for he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was no longer in the synagogue where you could assume a biblical worldview. I don't think we any longer live in a society where you can assume a biblical Worldview. It's comfortable to come to church because that's where you find a biblical worldview. But in society, and especially in this one Paul's looking at, which reflects, in a sense, I, it reflects, it extends out 20, 21 centuries right to today. The dynamics of what Paul is speaking into. You can feel it in Western civilization, the skepticism and so forth. So I just thought we'd just look at this passage this morning. The first thing I want to do is I want to give a wide-angle lens on this. I think it's important for our day because we live today in what some have called the clash of civilizations, a particular clash of two particular civilizations. The New Testament is written in a period we might call a clash of civilizations. 
It's been happening for a thousand years. It starts somewhat back in that ancient period. We hear names like Cyrus in the Old Testament, who brings in a Persian empire, or Darius, or Xerxes. They, they are there positioned in our Old Testament, representing a major civilization of the East, which was warring with the West. And who was the West? Places like Athens, and Sparta, and Rome were the Western world. For a thousand years, they were pushing up against him. Maybe you've seen some of the recent movies, the 300 or whatever. You know, we're kind of looking at that period of these, this civilizational clash. The New Testament is written, and we focus in on the Jew and the Greek, but they're representatives of two major civilizations confronting each other. Okay. Alexander. We all know about Alexander. You might not have studied your high school history very careful, but, you know, Alexander campaigned all the way to India, created a Hellenized world, and so by the time Jesus comes, we're dealing with Hebrews and Jews all over. Four, for every one in Jerusalem, there's probably four. One in Judea, there's, there's probably four in some other part of the, the world, and primarily speaking Greek, not Hebrew. So this, this extension of this empire, these empires, is very key. And Paul actually, Paul actually, in the later years of his life, there in Rome, probably under arrest, he's reflecting, just like Luke did in the book of Acts, on what God has done. He's pondering what the Almighty has done in the first three chapters. Go back and read those chapters. And in the, the, the 14th and the 16th verse, Paul is talking about the mystery. The mystery of God who's our peace, who made both groups, both groups, one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. He's speaking of the enmity of civilizations. Of the uncircumcised and the circumcised. He uses different words, but he's talking about that enmity. That he, God, might make the two into one new man and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Having put to death the enmity. like us to think today about the enmity, to ponder the the enmity, the increasing enmity of civilizations. Last night, my wife was able to speak a little bit of the, let me try to get here, of the, um, the Muslim world, where we've had most of our time, spent most of our time. And, uh, I think nothing needs to be said this morning of the contemporary sense of two major civilizations encountering each other. We hear of this day in, day out. I'd like to focus on a picture last night that my wife showed. Um, Our children with a friendly camel in Morocco And in the background, my friend Abdullah. 
Abdullah was my language teacher. He walked with me. He talked. He informed me. He basically helped me understand that world. I'm indebted to him. Abdullah never turned to Jesus. It was hard. He's somewhat of an illustration of the personal level of of difficulty we have in apostolic witness today when you're dealing with the scope of two civilizations. Because Abdullah told me, he says, you know, when I get nervous, my pupils shiver. And it's right. You know, every time I tried to talk about anything of the Lord or of, of truth, his pupils would shiver. And he didn't know if the guy was going to knock out or, you know, what's going to happen to him. So he kind of back off. But he had this aversion to any time we would talk about significant, deep spiritual reality. He was clouded by a history of two civilizations. One day we were walking together and doing our language class and talking together. And and we came to kind of some uh, holes in the ground. And we came down and kind of up and down and up and down. I said, hey, what's this? And he blushed in his bold, uh, kind of dark cinnamon look, I could actually see him blush. And he said, Barahim, this is where, when the, the independence of the country happened and the colonials were sent out, they dug up the graves of the French and sent them back to Paris. He blushed because he knew he was talking into an old but still very sensed conflict of civilizations. But one of the wonderful things that happened was he kept telling me, he said, you know, when I was a boy, I experienced something up in the mountains at high school. We lived in the Atlas Mountains, and he was had been way up. He's actually from the desert, from a small oasis. And he's, he was telling me stories about this, this time that he got sick in high school. In high school, he was at a bed in the local clinic there, and a little girl was next to him, and she would uh, jump up and down waiting for her mommy, talking about her mommy coming. And uh, finally, he said, the day came that his, her mommy came, and when she walked through the door, he said, Brahim, she was a Nisraniya. She was a foreigner, dressed just like our Berber people. All the dress. She spoke our language eloquently, and the little girl jumps out of her bed and says, Mommy, 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 goes to her. And they hug, and they talk, and then finally this Nisrania turns to him and says, Are you the one who's been taking care of my daughter? And he said, Yeah. She says, Oh, she gives money. She blesses him. She thanks him. She's just so wonderful. And they talk, and, and then she leaves the story is this, he said, Brahim. She's a Marabutiyim. She's one of the Catholic sisters who roams the mountains with our nomadic people, nurses them, nurtures them, blesses them, and the orphans she takes as a mother. I sensed his heart widening, opening, what I could not do because of civilizational dynamics. God had provided this little Protestant guy in the middle of the mountains with, whoa, a renegade Catholic sister breaking all the rules in her evangelical faith, breaking all the rules of the Catholic that had held on that country, and she was giving witness 
And it reached this man in his heart. He wanted me to go see the other sisters because they made rugs just like I was doing in the mountains. The day came when we could go to their little convent up in this, this little town. We walked to the door and I was kind of starting to go in and he said, just wait. He says, wait, Brahim. And he steps back. He steps back from the, um, the, uh, the door. And, and he, he says, Brahim, I, I feel fear. He was speaking in English at that point. And I said, uh, Abdullah, do you mean awe? He said, yes. Yes. That this little convent in the middle of the mountains was speaking a witness into this man's heart. Sometimes you don't care where that witness of God comes from. But you want, when you're in apostolic ministry, when you're with unreached peoples, you're looking for every possible witness of God that is there before you. And this is what we see with the Apostle Paul in on that Acropolis there in Athens. He's walking up that hill. He's looking around for every possible indication of God being there so that he can speak the truth of God to those philosophers. And you know what he finds. Man of Athens, I observe that you were very religious in all respects for while I was passing through and examining your objects of worship. I also found. He found a witness, an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What you therefore worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Maybe you won't call that a witness. There's a long background to that idol that the scholars have shown us. And Paul somehow was perceptive to what he had as a witness. So today, I'd also like to suggest that we need to ponder anew the witness to an unknown God that we're seeing across the unreached peoples of the world today. For the last 30 or 40 years, we're seeing a witness. These are religious landscapes that we would consider contaminated by idolatry, in Paul's case, mythologies, philosophies, Religious types of landscapes that are very difficult. What can you find there where God has placed a witness? In another sermon earlier, in chapter 14 of Acts, Paul shows up at another town called Lystra. He gives witness. Everything breaks loose at that. We can't go into it now. But at one point, he gives this very outstanding statement. In the generations gone by, God permitted all nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. When you're in the unreached peoples of the world, where the apostolic ministry is moving forward, where you cannot seem to find the footprints of God, you're looking for a a witness. And it's been happening. You've probably heard Almost every testimony coming out of the Muslim world today, you'll find that God was already there. You've heard of the dreams? Have you heard of the dreams? Have you heard of the dreams? 
You haven't. They're everywhere. Hardly a testimony you hear from the Muslim world turning to Christ. God gave him a dream. Our friend down in Toledo, English teacher, helping you know the internationals learn English. They have a little list. What would you like to talk about? Number four is dreams. So her Syrian uh, woman, was she Syrian, Beth? Iranian. Her Iranian uh, says, what do you want to talk about today? She goes, number four, dreams. She goes, 20 years ago, a man showed himself to me in a dream. He was dressed in white. He had bread in his hand. He had wine in his hand. And what did he say, hon? He said to her, take, eat, drink. What did that mean? God's doing this across the Muslim world. He's giving a witness. When two civilizations are in conflict and you're trying to communicate the gospel through that, God is understanding how difficult that is. And he's coming in the back door. He's reading their mail. He's surprising them with images and visions that allow them to understand that God has touched them right down in the intimacy of their person. He's providing a witness. It's, it's a powerful thing happening today. The other thing in the Muslim world that's astounding is, you know, the, the person in the Quran that gets the top billing, Jesus. Not Mohammed. Jesus gets top billing in the Quran. He's the healer. He's the powerful one. He's the one coming again. Amazing what's there. Oh, there's distortions all over the place. But in these difficult religious landscapes, we're seeing that the witness of the Quran, the witness of God in the Quran, Muslims are turning to Jesus. They won't find it all there. They have to move beyond those pages. They have to come to the Injil, the New Testament, and then it's the fullness of God and salvation. So we need to ponder. We need to ponder how God is giving witness to himself today. I'd like to also read a... In, uh, gotta move ahead here. Where are we? I haven't moved the slides. Thanks. Did it move? There we go. Yeah, in uh, verse 26 and 27. Paul has this amazing theology that comes out in these two verses. I want us to ponder this. Um, he says it this way. God made from every nation, and there's the word ethne, people group, of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul had a theology of culture. Paul had a theology of history. Do you see it there? And his theology, he didn't have the data. He didn't have the data of history or of culture that we have today. He didn't even know there was a whole other hemisphere of the world. 
at that time. But his theology is a theology for our time. And Paul Borthwick spoke to it last week. We're dealing with the globalization. I want us to ponder what you would call the globalization of the of the unreached peoples. Paul spoke it to, like I said, Paul spoke to it last week. Um, we're feeling it. The demographics of our country are changing. Um, we have people pouring in in diaspora movements. We know what's happening with the Syrian and the Afghanis today moving in major, massive movements uh, across the world. Um, it creates questions for us. But Paul's theology, Paul's theology anticipates is the interpretive key of what's happening today. Our civilization backs off from any divine providential working in history. We just enjoy history for its significance. We have other purposes for history. But Paul saw in history an interpretive, interpretive key, and that was a providential hand of God determining the habitations, the boundaries, the places, and the times of peoples so that they might seek him. He understood there was a fullness of time for, for peoples. That he was living in a fullness of time. That's why the word kairos is used there. It's not chronological time. He's speaking of kairos, of time that's momentary, a period of time when suddenly something starts to happen with a people. And they grope for him. And they seek God. And we see a movement for Christ. That's what Paul anticipates here. Now, I don't uh, have a lot of time to go into the different ways in which we uh, have thought about unreached peoples this week. Um, I uh, have a few slides here I'm going to kind of skip over. But one of the things you do notice, we can't think in just countries anymore, right? You got that picture? We're talking about peoples so that a place like Nigeria looks differently if you ask the question of the habitations and the boundaries and the times of ethne, of peoples. You think of a country differently. And God is moving through time in a serial type of way, people to people. And so we think of people groups and we try to define our purposes, our evangelistic purposes with them. Um, we, one way to say it, it's the largest group within which the gospel can spread without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. And so we, we look for what we might call the bridges of God that are naturally within a people so that the gospel can move. But it hits boundaries. It hits barriers. It hits language and cultural boundaries. It hits boundaries of religion. It hits boundaries of prejudice. And the gospel can kind of naturally come to a stop. It doesn't flow anymore. So for the last 40 years, there's been a lot of attempt to see what has been unseen. Those barriers, those boundaries, those peoples. Words like unreached are trying, we're trying to define 
that. Um, one way to define it is just 2% of the people being Christian or evangelical or not. That would be a critical mass, a way to uh, define what God might want to do. Another way would be to talk about the, the way in which the church or indigenous community is there or not. So this is one of the challenges of, of unreached peoples is to try to define We've been tracking this. We've been tabulating this. You can go online now. We're dealing with percentages and, and uh, statistics. For some of us, statistics don't do much. A matter of scale or size doesn't really reach you. Um, but uh, difference and the differences between people are important. Uh, they're vital for us discerning how the gospel moves in unreached peoples. Uh, if a picture can come up, it may eventually come up, but it's a, a picture of me, and yeah, here it is, Khalid. About four years ago, I had the chance to return to Morocco, first time in quite a while, and uh, got down to the Sahara, where we were looking at the nomadic routes into and out of the desert. And uh, I was uh, having a great time with Khalid, and uh, came to know this guy. He was a what you call a Sahara-wi, Sahara Desert-wi of the desert. And uh, he was driving his 4 by 4 but as a kid, he would travel with his dad on the Caravanserai, 11 times from Morocco all the way to Timbuktu on camel, those camel caravans. He knew that whole type of lifestyle, and uh, now he just drove a 4 by 4 And uh, But he said to me something really interesting. He said, you know, where you're from in, in Marrakesh, <clears throat> we don't like to go there. We went up there to pick you up, but we really don't like to go there because they don't really like us. Well, I'd assumed that there was no difference. They spoke the same language, basically. But no, we're of the desert. They really look down on us. I really don't like going there. And uh, I was looking at a barrier. I was looking at a boundary. And then the news came from him in the next, uh, next day that, yeah, he's going to be marrying a gal. She was actually on one of the tour groups. And uh, she's a Canadian, and he's moving to Canada. So he doesn't mind moving, but he'd rather move to Canada than just across the mountain to that other people. Boundaries are very, very important. But this whole question of globalization keeps keeps coming up. And uh, you kind of wonder what the... um, what the uh, what's happening to people groups? You know, in globalization, we've got this magnificent. We need to ponder again the globalization of unreached peoples. Are they melting away? What's happening to them? And uh, I would just say, um, let me give you an illustration. I was uh, in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, that's Malaysia, and I was uh, had to be there a bit early. Things and so I was out on the streets of Malaysia, enjoyed doing that. I was in the back of a store, I was getting some milk for my hotel room, and and uh, I thought I, you know, how it's kind of surreal when you get off the plane for the first day in another part of the world. You know, I'm in the back of this store, and I thought I heard Moroccan Arabic. Now that is surreal. I'm in Malaysia, and I'm hearing what I think is from the front of the store Moroccan Arabic. 
So I made my way to the front of the store, and then I saw two gentlemen behind the counter. And one of them started to speak what I thought I understood, and I said in Moroccan Arabic, I said, excuse me, sir, uh, is that, uh, how are you today, and, and are you speaking Arabic? And his eyes got really big, because a tall American six-foot-four gringo just spoke his language <laughs> in Kuala Lumpur. And so there's the connection. Morocco, America, Kuala Lumpur. But I turned to the man next to him. He was a little man. He was behind the, behind the cash register. And I said, and where are you from? And he said, Yemen. And I said, is that right? He said, you know, in our town in Detroit, we have two major sections of the city that have Yemenese. They have Dearborn and they have Hamtramck. And he said, I know. My uncle lives in Hamtramck. Yemen, Detroit, Kuala Lumpur. Some call it the ethnoscapes of the world. People groups stretching across the world. Still with definition, still with other identities, somewhat assimilating, somewhat not. And uh, we're dealing with the globalization of, uh, we need to ponder it again. I can get this uh, next slide. Uh, we'll see if we can get there. Oh, there's a good one. You'll like that one. There you go. That's, that's, that's globalization right there. You like that one? Yeah. So in verse 30 or 32, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, this is Paul, to all men that everywhere they should repent because he has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has raised from the dead. And then it says, some sneered. It speaks to our society, doesn't it? The sneer, the skepticism, and uh, just reaches out to you. The philosophers, the, uh, the next uh, step that Paul takes, I want us to, to really reflect on this, the, the unrepentant mind. The unsophisticated gospel. It's so important to understand this in our world today. Um, Paul says in the next uh, next town he goes to, the Corinthians. A few years later, he writes to the Corinthians about how he entered into Corinth after Athens. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? An unsophisticated gospel, the foolishness of God goes beyond the, the wise. And so we need to reflect on this because most of the world lives in fear. Fear of the divine. Most of the unreached people groups, I almost guarantee you, live in the fear of divine judgment. I was at a conference very recently where one of the key East African leaders was talking to us. He says, you know, in John 16, it says this interesting uh, thing. It says, and when he comes... He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He says, you know, it's hard to talk to Muslims immediately about sin. But if you start talking about judgment, they feel the divine come down on them. And when we see the turning take place, they understand sin because they really understood the judgment of God. So we need to ponder anew this, this unsophisticated gospel and what it's meaning for unreached peoples. It's not like they're on the top of that Acropolis with philosophers. More likely we're seeing in unreached people groups the unsophisticated turn 
in large numbers. And that's what I'd also like to, to, uh, to ponder as well. Um, just another uh, statement here. Um, one of the guys that came into mission with me back years ago is a guy named Dave Cashin, came out of Amherst, California, uh, Amherst, uh, Massachusetts. And Dave, uh, went to school with me at Gordon and, uh, great guy. His dad was a chemistry professor out at the university, so he lived in Saudi Arabia for a couple of years. Dave went into the, uh, the Muslim world, called into it, uh, was in Bangladesh for years. He's now a professor down at Columbia International University. And Dave came to town. We have a large Bengali section there. And I took Dave down Bengali Avenue. I said, this is going to be fun because he's eloquent in Bengali. So we're walking down the street. And he says, he, he, he says to me, you'll never, you don't forget some things. He's walking down and he sees a little bookstore, a little Bengali bookstore. And he says, hey, I want to see if there's any books here on hell. I said, what? He said, yeah, watch this. He walks in. There must have been about 25 books on this little thing, and then there's clothes and all sorts of other things. And sure enough, he said about nine of the books were about hell. What does that tell you? The world lives sensitive to what Paul was saying here, that there's a day coming, that there's a day fixed when there'll be judgment. And the world responds to that. We need to ponder that whole dynamic uh, today. But also wants us to ponder anew the unprecedented movements to Christ. Friends, we are living at a hinge of history. For 14 centuries, we have not seen what we are seeing today in the Muslim world. We're just, we're, we're stunned. Now most of it cannot be published. Most of it cannot be communicated. You will not hear it on the news. But until the year 2000, you might have been able to count somewhere in the vicinity over 14 centuries, nine movements to Christ in the Muslim world. But since the year 2000, we've probably seen somewhere in the vicinity of 70 movements to Christ, just over 70. A movement, a thousand coming to Christ, maybe a hundred churches. We're talking about a significant turning to Christ and a movement in an unreached people. And we just have a sense today I want to encourage your hearts that if we ponder what the Almighty can do, this is what he's doing. And often the missionary movement cannot take responsibility for this. There has been communication of the gospel over the years, sowing and sowing and so forth. But then finally, there is a kairos time. And I think we're in it for many peoples. And there's turning. Still an infinitesimal amount of persons compared to the billions out there. But it's an encouragement to us that if we ponder what the Almighty can do, we will see that he's moving in this day. I need to close up here. Um, and as I reflect on just this, this exercise of reflecting on the, on the, the Almighty's work, um, I would have to say that with all the encouragement of what's happening, we still might be facing our most difficult days. We're encountering what some would call religious civilizations. Andrew Wall says it this way. Another culture can have an accumulated body of wisdom and ways of thought that in their own way are as coherent as the Greek world faced by Paul in the first century. This was a difficult moment for Paul. He saw a couple of people emerge from his time there on that mount. 
It was a difficult challenge. He was, in a, he was no longer in the synagogue. He was amongst an unreached people. And that type of challenge we face, and probably we face a more difficult challenge in the days ahead. We've seen, just by the sheer neglect of focus, peoples coming to Christ over the last 30 or 40 years. But I think we might have left the most difficult for the end. And so this is a time for the church to see that God is moving amongst unreached peoples. To raise up, don't back off. Yes, they're amongst us, but we're dealing with masses of people. And I challenge this church, even though you are one of the finest examples of a church in terms of getting behind a base of support for this type of ministry in the world, I challenge you again to ponder what the Almighty can do. See if it stirs your hearts to new things. About 20 or so years ago, I was here. They gave me the pulpit on that occasion. And I sat next, or I actually lived with, on that weekend, a family. Uh, didn't realize the, the husband was pumping me with questions. And I was answering what I could. And, uh, you know, he was a painter. He painted houses. And uh, we had a great time. Wife, two kids. About five so years later, word comes. When I ask about a guy named Rich Forson, he said he's not there anymore. He's in Eastern Europe. I said, cool. That is just downright cool. That you were sitting there at that church, you were living with this guy, and he had an apostolic itch. And you didn't even see it, Brad. You just answered his question. Ponder what the Almighty can do amongst us. The gifts that God gives us. Watch out for the people that find it uncomfortable to be in church. Not in a negative, but they just want to be out there. They've got an itch. Maybe it's an apostolic itch. Just like Saul, Paul had. And Barnabas realized he had to encourage this and release that witness. Maybe God is doing that amongst you. Ponder what the Almighty can do amongst you. Lord Jesus, we do ask you in these moments this morning, as we reflect on Paul and his ministry at Athens, that you would change our thoughts, that you would wrinkle our paradigms, that you would upset our models, if that's what's necessary, Lord, for us to be able to see all that you as the Almighty can do and are doing. I do bless this church in your name, Jesus. Amen.